0: Welcome to another episode of the UNSW Canberra podcast series, Navigating Uncertainty. Today's podcast addresses the topic of the global crisis in biodiversity and species extinction. The 2019 Global Biodiversity Assessment noted an alarming decline in wildlife populations and ecosystems and warned that up to 1 million plant and animal species are at risk of extinction, many within decades. The scientists who drafted that report called for transformative change, a fundamental system-wide reorganisation across technological, economic, and social factors. We discussed the key legal and governance regime that aims to protect biodiversity, which is the, the 1992 Convention on Biological Diversity, and asked if the convention can deliver the transformative change needed to build a world living in harmony with nature. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Environment and Governance Research Group based at UNSW Canberra. It's been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I'm Anthony Burke, and it's my pleasure to host today's conversation. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Lim, who is a senior lecturer in law at Macquarie University, a fellow on the global assessment of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Quite a a mouthful, it's IPBES for short, and you'll probably hear a bit more about that. And she's a board member of Australia's National Environmental Law Association. Welcome, Michelle, it's great to have you with us.
1: Thanks so much, Tony, and thanks for acknowledging country. Um, I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wadamadavu clan of the Darug nation.
0: Great. All right. Well, let's get into this. First, can you tell us, our listeners, what biodiversity is and why it's valuable? What's happening with biodiversity globally and how worried should we be?
1: So as a biodiversity lawyer, you might expect me to define biodiversity as it is stated in Article 2 of the Convention on Biological Diversity, variability among living organisms, inter alia, this, that, and the other, etc., etc., etc. But I think there's so many better ways to talk about what biodiversity is. It's the beauty and wonder of the variety of life on our unique blue marble. It's the evolutionary responses to place. It's the processes that provide us with clean air, fresh water, the food we eat. So biodiversity is nature. It's the riot of life on earth. It's what sustains life on earth. And it's what makes life worth living. So coming back to the next part of your question of why is it valuable, with that as a starting point, I think... What makes biodiversity valuable is how it's so important in its own right, its intrinsic values, but also our relational values, how we interact with nature, how we have these responsibilities to nature. And then, of course, if you want to go instrumental, what does biodiversity do for us anyway? It does all these things, from pest protection, from food security, the, the more diverse our food systems are, the better protected we are against disasters. Speaking of disasters, it also has this huge role and increasingly be, will be important in dealing with natural disasters. For, for example, I worked in, in Bangladesh, and they're renowned for being one of the most disaster-prone areas on earth and yet when cyclone isla hit they've got these huge sea walls along the coastline but it was those areas that had intact mangrove systems where you had significant um, reduction in, in loss of life loss of property etc so yeah nature does so much for us and it's so important in its own right which as you alluded to why it's critical that we understand and address the challenges to biodiversity. We're losing species to an extent never before seen in human history. Only five times before in the history of the entire earth have there been mass extinctions. We're not at the sixth mass extinction yet, but we're getting increasingly closer to that sixth extinction. And and this time the driver is not a meteorite, but a single species being a key driver towards the sixth mass extinction. So the question of, is there still hope? Yes, And, and the science supports this. Absolutely, there's still hope. If you look at the scientific modeling, definitely we can turn around the global state of biodiversity, but as you alluded to in your introduction, to do so, we need to act in revolutionary ways, to act at a pace and a scale that we never have before in order to realise this hope of a, of a thriving world for humans and, and everyone else that shares this planet.
0: So is this what IBEZ is getting at um, in its big global biodiversity assessment where you know, I gather scientists have identified potentially, well, speculated that there may be 8.7 million species on Earth, but one million is at risk of extinction. So are we at some kind of looming tipping point where our pressure on the Earth's ecosystems and our destruction of forests and overfishing, etc., are leading us to?
1: Exactly, yeah. And one of the things that um, the IPES Global Assessment points to is the two, up to now, the two greatest causes of biodiversity loss are land use change um, in terrestrial systems and um, over exploitation of species, uh, um, as you've identified in uh, marine systems. And uh, those are the, one, the key causes on land and in water. So that's number one for land and water and you swap them around. So the second largest cause of loss of marine species being sea use change. And the second cause of um, biodiversity loss on land being of exploitation on species. Mm, mm. What comes in at number three is climate change. Mm. So the IPBES IPCC report that I was recently involved in demonstrated that unless we do something about it, this century, climate change will become the number one cause of biodiversity loss. So we're not looking at traditional drivers, but all these increasing other drivers as well as we move into the Anthropocene.
0: Okay. So our topic today is how we govern this this situation and and try to ameliorate it. Hmm. You mentioned climate change. I think many people will have heard of the Paris Agreement on climate change, but few seem to know much about the Biodiversity Convention. How does that work and what's her, what are its key purposes?
1: And, yes, as, as a biodiversity lawyer, my key right, right? Like why? They're the two conventions that came, they're born at the same time, born in the same place, come out, coming out of the 1992 um, conference in Rio, and yet so much more focus on the twin convention of, of the uh, UNFCCC as compared to the Biodiversity Convention. Mm-hmm. So the Biodiversity Convention is a very comprehensive convention in terms of its content, and its three objectives do really well in balancing the interests of developing countries versus those of developed countries. So you're seeing three objectives, the first being conservation of biodiversity, the second, sustainable use, and the third, the equitable sharing of the benefits of um, the genes that, that come from biodiversity. And it's got almost universal membership, so almost every country in the world, except the United States is a party to the convention.
0: Fascinating. So, I think there's a a key question at the heart of some of the recent writing that you've been doing about um, how the convention works in relation to those key objectives, particularly sustainable use and conservation. Initially, what would you say the Biodiversity Convention is doing well? What should we be thankful for there?
1: Yeah, it does so many things really, really well, particularly when you look at some of the prior biodiversity-related conventions. So, for example, CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, as the name suggests, deals with trade in species and then only endangered species, a really, really effective convention in that sense because of the trade mechanisms in its implementation, but very species-based other conventions, the Convention on Migratory Species, again, very species-based. You've got Ramsa dealing with the whole ecosystem being wetland ecosystems, but only one particular ecosystem. Then you get the Convention on Biological Diversity, the CBD. So many good things in there. We've already talked about how it deals with the range of ways in which people interact with nature, but it also has provisions there around in-situ conservation. So that's your protected areas, but also ex-situ conservation, seed banks, protecting genetic variability, et cetera, recognises the rights of Indigenous people. So, uh, and also how biodiversity has this really important role to play for poverty alleviation, sustainable livelihoods, et cetera, et cetera. So its content, its content is actually really, really good. And I think we're about to get to a conversation about this huge qualification around, around the instrument.
0: Mm. Just before we, we get there, would you, for example, I, I received some communication from the Earth Law Centre this morning concerned about the new biodiversity plan and some language that, that's been dropped out, which mm-hmm. referenced the rights of nature. and. Would you say that the, the kind of norms working in the convention have become more ecocentric, more interested in the survival and flourishing of ecosystems as an intrinsic value? Or is that a touch optimistic?
1: Yeah. So, and we're talking about the plan here rather than the, well, I
0: the mean, convention
1: itself? Or? The
0: plans, in a sense, are a part of the convention. Yeah. I think it'd be great to have you talk shortly about the concrete elements of that plan, but just in terms of what the commitments of the convention are, are they, you know, is sustainable use really about development or is it something more ecologically stringent, Hmm. you might say?
1: Yeah, yeah. And and, um, back to the objectives of the convention as well as um, its text, I think it has done this excellent job of going there's not just one western conservation science way to view nature Mm -hmm. Um, and people have been interacting with nature since the beginning of time nature's not something we lock out lock up over there it's these interactions with nature that have allowed it to flourish and i think the convention instrument itself does a really good job of and you can see it reflected all the way up from the objectives to the particular um, articles ar- around how we conserve biodiversity, who should have a, a, a role, who um, should have a say in ha- how biodiversity is conserved, how we engage with the multiple components of nature. So, as content, yeah, the convention does quite a good job in, in balancing these very different ways in which we see and view nature and biodiversity.
0: So then how, how would you say that the, the convention is flawed or even failing and why is that?
1: Yeah, and we've had this discussion as well starting with Article 3 where there's the, this emphasis of the only thing you can do wrong in the convention is if you harm the biodiversity of other countries. And Article Three, similarly preserving the right of sovereign countries to essentially do what they like in accordance with their national policies. And all the really good things we've just been talking about across each of the articles of the convention, almost every single one is qualified in language such as, as far as possible and as appropriate, or subject to national legislation. So they've got excellent provisions in there about the engagement of Indigenous people, about the elevation of Indigenous knowledge, but that's also subject to national legislation. So all these get out of jail clauses across what in the content itself is, is really, really good stuff, means that the only thing that the convention actually requires countries to do is write up reports themselves. So self-reporting under Article 26 of the convention. And to me, that since its inception has been one of the reasons why the convention hasn't done what it really, really needs to do to protect life on Earth.
0: Yeah, it's it's a striking contrast, for example, with the nuclear non-proliferation regime where there's a lot more accountability where the International Atomic Energy Agency, we don't really have one in the environmental space, but they can come into a state and look around their facilities Mm. and count and, you know, there's much more transparency and accountability in that system, probably because there's a perception that, you know crucial international security issues that are at stake but the the biodiversity situation globally is surely a crucial situation too.
1: Exactly um, and that difference in how we frame security even yeah, um, what, yeah what can how we can continue to live safely on this
0: planet. Yeah I I teach environmental security in Canberra and whilst I understand there is debate over whether that's the right way to talk about the environment. There are interesting new new kinds of holistic thinking that talk about ecological security and the security of ecosystems and the people who depend on them Mm. mattering. So recently you've written about the new draft global biodiversity plan that's going to come out under the convention, those negotiations have been underway for quite a while now. And you've written about this for the conversation and the Planet Politics Institute. Can you tell us what key measures are in this plan and what do you think is missing? What needs to be put there?
1: Yeah, and, and thank you for publishing that on your blog. I really appreciate that. Um, so, again, you're seeing similar Issues being continued from the, the convention itself, being continued into the, um, the next set of targets in the 2020 targets, the things that it does really well. We've talked about some of the key drivers of biodiversity loss being land use change, of exploitation, climate change, and two others being invasive species and pollution, all of the and these are the key drivers of biodiversity loss identified by the ipbes global assessment. All of these are directly addressed in the targets um, of this draft new plan. But what the ipbes global assessment also identifies is that the things we've just been talking about—land use change, rubber exploitation, etc., cetera, etc.—these cetera, come from a range of indirect drivers overconsumption and production, um, demography and other consideration, also the underpinning values that are driving the current dominant economic system. And it's these indirect drivers that the current plan doesn't address as well. It does a really good job of linking, uh, in mainstreaming, linking to the sustainable development goals, even in the language around nutrition, et cetera, but not so much about going. Well, what are the underlying causes? How do we tackle the really, really difficult issues? Yes, there's issue. There's a target on subsidies, but there was also a target on subsidies in the Aichi targets. And I should say, for people not as familiar with the convention, prior to the current set of um, 21 targets, there were the 20 Aichi targets from 10 years ago, and Pretty much none of those were met, apart from, yes, there was excellent progress made on self-reporting, um, but apart from that, those HE targets haven't been done. They, they were good in themselves, again, really good content. Being continued here, again, really good content, bringing in um, the key findings of the IPBEDS Global Assessment, but not those fundamental change issues, not that transformative change that, that you were talking about at the beginning, Tony not, well, in many ways, continuing down a path of good content, but not actually requiring countries to do anything about it.
0: Yeah, that's extraordinary. So perhaps just for the last question, having seen what is good about the convention and what what's not working, are there more profound reforms to the system that you'd advocate as somebody who, who worked on with bears on the assessment mm. and generated the, the demand for transformative change?
1: I like how you frame that question because it's not just, you know, how do we tinker with the current um, convention? How do we even tinker with the global um, biodiversity regime? But how, how do we rethink global governance of biodiversity. And I'd probably start with three things. You would perhaps expect a lawyer to go, we need more binding mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, we would do that, we would need that. But what that reflects is the need for greater commitment from government to get to those more binding provisions. But if we were to think about what are three things that in terms of rethinking how we protect life on Earth, I would say, first, rethink what is included in the global biodiversity regime, and that is mainstreaming uh, in, across all other sectors, where trade, etc., is included within that, um, but also, importantly, decolonizing thinking about who are sovereign actors here, recognizing that one of the key findings of the IPES Global Assessment is the essential role of indigenous peoples and local communities in lands protected by indigenous peoples and local communities, you see significantly greater biodiversity outcomes. And yet the capacity of important stewards of the land to continue to do this is continuously being eroded globally. And second, the second thing I'd like to think about is, again, another concept that comes out of the IPES Global Assessment is how hyperconnected the world has become. They use the, the term telecoupling, this idea that impacts on biodiversity can be the result of actions in far, far away places. Um, So, for example, the deforestation of the Amazon, some of the drivers of that is the need for soybean for human and animal consumption in China, that in turn impacting a range of markets around the world. So we're not just looking at, you know, very local impacts on biodiversity, but this really hyper-connected world. And something I think we also need to tap into is the opportunities that the hyperconnected world creates. So, for example, you're seeing transnational corporations in Borneo at destroying uh, orangutan habitat. At the same time, part, uh, the awareness campaigns that have been created due to the, the internet um, have been an imp- where you have distant actors playing this important role in addressing some of the issues around oil palm plantations far, far away from where these actors may be. Which brings me to my third point about given that we no longer live in this world of countries, you know, being their own fortresses or um, if international law was ever only about particular countries, it can no longer be, because of the growing role of much larger global actors. But importantly, my third point about this need for more than international law, one which is transnational, one that not only links, in my first point, not only links addressing biodiversity across a range of sectors, but across a range of scales. And we've seen this in the climate sense, particularly in the US where you had a lack of national level in in the previous administration, a lack of national level action on climate change, where you had subnational governments such as California stepping in um, to to, as being a key actor in this and also multinational um, corporations. But yes, acknowledging that you know, avoiding greenwashing in all of that as well. But importantly, Mm. rethinking global biodiversity governance as not international law biodiversity governance, of of linking a range of sectors, uh, governance scales, a range of actors across these scales for a more truly global approach to biodiversity.
0: Yeah, that's a really powerful set sort of in, insights, it, it makes me think of the the kind of dilemma that one sometimes encounters in this community where some lawyers might be inclined to treat environmental law like it's it's a black letter situation, the political compromises that it began with are just embedded there forever. when in fact you know, say in, by analogy to the discussions on climate, that the urgency and the ambition, Globally are growing, and the regime needs to somehow transform. And I, I imagine mm. that's the same in biodiversity. It's a living thing, yes. and you're showing us how the demand is changing for what it should be able to do and who it should include.
1: Exactly. Yes, and 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 I would say biodiversity even more so than climate because mm. we are. It's so much about place. It's so much about our interactions with biodiversity even though climate itself has been you know abstracted to a level it shouldn't be even more so for biodiversity those local level connections linking those governance regimes around local level connections to some sort of uh, global regime which isn't just about international law but connecting each of those different scales.
0: Well, thank you very much, Michelle. Thanks for for joining us and sharing your wisdom and passion about this issue. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on Navigating Uncertainty. And do watch out for forthcoming episodes.
1: Thanks, Tony.